Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Welcome yeah. to the What You Know Should Know podcast. This week, first ever interview. Two special guests. If you guys want to introduce yourselves, maybe give a tiny bit of background before we get started. Okay. Tarisha, you want to go first? Uh, you're our leader, so you can go ahead first. Oh, okay. So we're going to defer to that. All right. <laughs> Well, my name is Brian Clary. I am the uh, founder slash co-founder with Teresa of SRI Spectral Research and Investigations in Huntington, West Virginia. I have done paranormal research and investigations since I was about 15 years old. So almost 20 years, well, a little bit over 20 years now at this point. Um, we wanted to start a new in organization to kind of do this because some of the ones that have been more established over the years have kind of to fold. That's why Teresa and I kind of found ourselves is because Teresa was part of a well-known and established group here in the region for very uh, several, several years before I think they just kind of at time, as time went on, they kind of went their own separate ways. Thank you. And um, and I'm Teresa Racer. Um, in addition to being a paranormal investigator, I also run the website, Teresa's Haunted History of the Tri-State. And I've really been interested in this field, like, my whole life. <laughs> I mean, some of the earliest books that I remember having as a kid were, like, ghost books. Um, so when I was about nine, we moved into a house that, like, everybody thought was haunted. And so that's when I really started, like, researching things like, you know, okay, what 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 could be paranormal? What might not be paranormal? And from there, it just took off. <laughs> so I've been, I've been doing this. I'm 38 now, so <laughs> over 20 years in the field. That's awesome. So it seems like you guys both started at a super young age. Did you have any role models? Like that, like, I know there are like the Warrens, but was there anybody that reached out to you like when you were starting to do your investigation anybody that you thought of as like wow this is the gold standard i was a big hans holzer fan when i was younger um his were some of the first kind of like collective works on the paranormal that i found um but being from west virginia um ruth ann music you know, she collected local folklore from West Virginia, had some awesome books, uh, Coffin Hollow, the Telltale Lilac book. Those are the ones that I grew up reading. When I first started this, there wasn't a paranormal scene in West Virginia. <laughs> I mean, there just there wasn't people no. doing this. Um, so I had to, you know, kind of look outside the box for role models. Yeah, a lot of when I was growing up, the biggest group that we or was kind of getting established at the time, because I remember always watching television with my dad in the evenings. And uh, one of the things that he was always go to was the original, the original Ghost Hunters. And he also watched a lot of that Most Haunted that was on Travel Channel for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Zach. Um, oh, what's his name now? I usually give him grief, Teresa, and I can't remember it. Um, that is, yeah, Bagans. So I watched him a lot growing up as well. I mean, when those shows came out, I mean, it was the early 2000s. So a lot of folks that are into the field today would have grown up like watching them on TV and just kind of getting the start through them. 
in the early years, especially when you had a lot more of the emphasis on like the science and less on the backgrounds of the individuals and the personalities of the individuals was also really big. As time went on, as television got kind of its uh, little webs in there, it started to deteriorate quite a bit. So a lot of those guys like Jason, um, Jason Hawes, Grant, um, I can't remember Grant's last name, were kind of influences. A lot of the same folks that Teresa mentioned as part of her readings, Holzer uh, was one I remember reading very early on. So those kind of are kind of where I've got my start as well. Yeah. So you mentioned ghost TV. Would you say that's an accurate depiction of what it's like today or no? I think for my part, and I'll let Teresa kind of jump in as well whenever she wants. One of the things that you've noticed as over the years has went on, there's been more emphasis on the television side of it, the entertainment mm -hmm. side of it. There, these companies are like 0.0 and stuff like that. They know what they're doing. They've made a lot of these different television shows over the years, and they have kind of figured it out. And they've also figured out over the years, seeing mistakes that have been made or hearing comments that have been made by folks is they always want more. And mm -hmm. I think that was one of the things that kind of set out to me from an early state with, with the original sci-fi channel incantation of ghost hunters is that those guys seemed to be just as happy and I, I could be wrong on this it could have been television itself and it's time but they seemed almost as happy to not get anything or to be able to prove that whatever it was was not the paranormal now over time as a lot of these television shows have kind of picked in that has kind of went by the wayside and now there is more emphasis on the the chill factor or whatever you want to call and Teresa Well I mean you got to keep in mind that these ghost hunting shows even the early incantations were not marketed for paranormal investigators. Mm -hmm. They were marketed, you know, for your regular person that kind of wanted a taste of it, kind of get their, you know, a thrill and have everything wrapped up in 22 to 44 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are parts of it that I would say, okay, that's pretty accurate. Um, but not really. <laughs> um, yeah. There's so much more behind the scenes that they don't show you. Um I've worked actually on one pretty famous television show behind the scenes and I won't mention what it was, but when I didn't want to be on camera, they just took all my research and brought in a historian that found it. <laughs> that sucks. Um, so you were mentioning that like the earlier guys, they were super happy with uh, like just getting nothing. And what I had read up on is that a lot of paranormal investigators, when they originally got into it, were skeptics. Have you guys noticed that as well? Yeah. I think uh, I've become more skeptical over the years. Yeah. Considering some of the things that I've experienced over the years, and I know Teresa's had similar experiences, some of the things that you would experience or be, I'm trying to think of the word to use, so when we meet with clients, uh, we have met with clients over the past. I know I've done it over many years, but here, just like in recent years or recent times, we had an interview with a client that we were kind of skeptical, skeptical to begin with. 
And then we get there, and it is exactly what you think, which is probably not something that is paranormal, but something that is more, more, far more uh, human-based than anything else. Um, you'll have also the up opportunities that uh, a lot of folks that I've known have gotten into it and become more of a believer for whatever reason. I think that's kind of a flawed logic, to be honest, because what you're, the whole object of this is to find as much scientific proof as possible. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that we operate in a very, um, trying to think, scrutinized field. Most of the equipment we use is equipment that has been used solely for another purpose and been reanimated into something that could be paranormal, but we don't know with 100% certainty. We can only use by the best guesses and the best theories that are out there in the day. And hopefully one in two million might be something that said, oh, there was a little uh, incremental jump up there. Problem is that a lot of the equipment and stuff like that that is being used now on television for that um, extra boost of entertainment value, I think a lot of it is. It is such flawed technology that it is almost unusable, but to the general watcher, the general person that is into paranormal just on a day here and there, it seems like good stuff. I am very much on the other end of the spectrum on that. So so that's pretty interesting. Can you like, can you kind of explain though, like what you mean by the equipment, like being repurposed from something else? Like I pretend we don't know anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know much about the equipment type stuff. I I've seen some things, but I couldn't tell you, like I could never guess what it's repurposed from. I got you. So an EMF detector, just basic one, a basic tool that comes out of every ghost hunter's pocket. The idea is that ghosts are electrical manifestations and they can adjust or, envelop the magnetic field in a surrounding area and they can make adjustments to it. Sometimes a uh, spike in pressure or spike in that uh, magnetic field might be a spirit trying to reach out to us or trying to manifest itself or something like that. But an EMF detector is just a piece of electrical equipment. It's something that's used to target uh, lines and stuff like that in the walls, especially electrical lines. If you are in older houses, which a general, the old story with the older houses is that older houses are typically more haunted. Well, that may be true in terms of that, but it also may be the fact that the house has not been updated in 50 or 60 years and the wiring that is used in the wall has deteriorating insulation on it. So that wiring, even when you flip a switch on an old house, if that wiring is deteriorated at all, you're going to get a pickup in the magnetic field. And what electricians use those EMF detectors for is to go around and find places that they can isolate in the line that are problematic. That way they can adjust them or when they're doing a new line out, they know how to fix any negative issues that are in the house. And EMFs are known to be something that can affect people. Uh, you can be more sensitive and stuff like that. And then there comes the haunting extra element. That's not necessarily to say all situations are that. But a lot of your haunting situations, your paranormal situations can be looked at as a lot of them are EMF related. Okay. Yeah. And to keep in mind, um, you know, we can't prove that ghosts exist, let alone what they are, the physics behind them. So we can't create equipment 
to really, you know, measure that, we've got to take what's already available that measures different changes, you know, in in our physical world, such as EMF detectors are the big ones. They'll mm-hmm. take a regular EMF detector, slap a little like plastic label on it that says ghost meter and mm-hmm. up the cost 20 to 30 bucks. Yes. Uh, but you know, we we use a lot of technology that wasn't necessarily meant for ghost hunting. You know, we we use DVR cameras, um, infrared cameras, mm-hmm. uh, digital voice recorders, um, all this stuff, you know, wasn't, you know, designed for ghost hunting, but mm-hmm. we try to detect those, you know, little subtle changes in the environment around us. And mm-hmm. maybe if there's a change, we can link that to paranormal activity. Yeah. Another piece of equipment that's really become popular in recent years is something called the spirit box. Spirit boxes, how they are functional. They are a nothing more than a radio. That is it. They are a standard AM FM radio that you can get at Walmart for $15. And what it is, is when you mess with a little handheld radio, if you've ever went and hit the tuning button, you'll notice that it jumps between stand chase or channels until it finds a signal that is steady enough to hold. What you are doing or what the people that are doing that are using these spirit box or making spirit boxes and selling them on the internet, all they are doing is they are taking out that stop gap that is in a radio that allows it to detect a signal and stop there. They are deactivating that so it runs in a loop and it's running constantly at a very high speed. And if you're anywhere near a major metropolitan or even some smaller areas, you're going to pick up signals on occasion. So those things will run, and you'll pick up a big word. It'll be like, help. Well, that might be paranormal. I think it's kind of unlikely that it is, but what it could be is just simply the fact that that signal, that AM, FM signal at that time was coming in stronger than anything else on the spectrum. But then you'll notice it just continues to go on in the perpetual circle that is the spirit box. That is what that piece of equipment is. That is extremely popular in today's television based ghost hunting that is something that gives you answers and it might be i hate to say it like this but i think in a lot of cases this is how it works they get the answers they want out of it just by getting something to respond even though there might not be anything there it's more fitting to the public and to the general watcher to see at least something to pick up that Otherwise, could be a forty-four minutes of solid boredom. Yeah. So this might be a silly question, but so I've I've seen I've heard the spirit box. I went to Zach Baggins Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it does the, is that just rehitting the loop essentially? Yeah, it's running through the cycle. Is oh, all it wow. is. It's running through, and it you'll get these distortions periodically. Yeah, and running through the stations, and then occasionally you'll just get that like pop in where the signal boosts up just enough to pop out and then come back out. That is all that science is doing. What other uh, methods of communication do you guys use? I've heard of the light game, things like that. I don't know what you guys are, are using. Go ahead, Teresa. You can answer this one. I feel like I talk a lot. We try to, you know, be diverse. We try to use a, a different methods of communication. Um, we do just, you know, the classic 
um, EVP with the recorder, try to get um, electromagnetic voices. Those are voices that you can't hear with your own ears. They're either too high or too low on our spectrum. Um, so we just, you know, ask questions and answers, try to get, you know, answers um, to come through the EVP. Uh, usually, unless you're doing like the Estes method where you're listening it to it in real time, we have to just go back and check that later. Mm -hmm. um, we do have some of the fun toys, though. We have spirit boxes. Uh, mm -hmm. We have the Novelis, which is very similar. It's yep. more of a device that takes electromagnetic fields and converts them into words that are in a dictionary. And what we kind of do to like combat, you know, the issues of, well, okay, is it really communication? We keep a log of mm -hmm. all the words that come out of it and what, you know, we're saying beforehand. Um, that way we can't have that, you know, confirmation bias that, oh my gosh, you know, it answered our question when it said 30 other words that, you know, are just have nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It, we want to have that data, but we really, really want to analyze that data. And, you know, it's, it's really fun and awesome when, you know, the spirit box seems to answer a question for us, but then, you know, like the skeptical scientific side really has to go back and be like, okay, is that help just from a, you know, an acid commercial or is it really, you know, a spirit asking us for help? Mm -hmm. What would you say was like your most uplifting communication with with something? Oh, Brian, you should probably take that one. Um, trying to think if there is we one of our favorite sites is in central West Virginia up in uh, Sutton. And it's the William Edgar Haveman house that was built back in the 18 early 1890s, I believe, by a wealthy entrepreneur in the region. And he was, according to what we know, not necessarily the nicest to his wives, to put it mildly. We know that he had some issues with women of a lot of different types, but I think we've had some issues. I think Teresa and I, when we did one of our um, EMF session or EMF EBP sessions, and then we also had the Ovilus running, which is the thing she was talking about, has a dictionary mode in it. Uh, we seem to get some answers that seem to match up with something with one of his former wives, I believe her name was Emma, where it seemed like things didn't, it wasn't like what I would call like a call for help or anything like that, or anything that seemed overly negative. Uh and in and of itself, when you know the history of the family and dealing with the issues that were going on there, it would be even a big deal to get nothing bad from, uh, like I would, so what I would equate to a domestic abuse situation, as it would be to get your best. Um, uh, trying to think of the best ceremonial or most um, celebrative message. I think I mean generally the things that we get, and it's it. It's hard because we have been so ingrained in the new age of ghost hunting where there is so much emphasis put on getting the reaction out of the the out of the um, the constituency that we expect to hear these 
oh, I'm okay, don't worry about me kind of things. And I think that's in general just by the nature of what we do. I can't speak to some groups, but I can speak to us. It would be very difficult to do one of these sessions and get a ton of responses that would tend to go that way. A lot of the things we get seem to be kind of cryptic or uh, cryptic. So it's kind of like um, we kind of have to make our best inferences on it. And that's the hardest part of it. Mm-hmm. So, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask about uh, kind of what you guys were talking about earlier is really trying to make sure that what you're getting is like a confirmed anomaly compared to, you know, the radio frequency. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times, what we do, and then Teresa can belly in on this as well, um, what we try to do is run different pieces of equipment at the same time. Uh, One of the things we try to do most often is have to have all of our members or anybody that's with us holding at least one piece of equipment. That way we can verify across different pieces of equipment that we're not like if we have two different EMF detectors, we can we can figure out if one of them's faulty or not by if they're both going off at the same time. So if we test it to a source like an electrical box or whatever, and both of them are going off, we can be reasonably assured that those pieces of equipment are synced up and they are both working properly. Sometimes we'll do an EMF detector and a K2 meter, which is kind of similar, runs similarly, not quite the same, but a little bit, just a little bit of a manipulation there that allows it to kind of function in the same element. We'll try to do that, or we'll try to do something like physically just doing the uh, magnetic field check but also having a digital recorder going or a camera going or a um, what am I thinking of Teresa? We did this just the other day and I can't remember. Um, Oh shoot. Everything we do, we make sure that we're being videoed, you know, just for another layer of evidence integrity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, we, we always try to double up. Um, too much data is better than not enough data. So, you know, anytime, you know, if we get a hit on one piece of equipment, that's awesome. If we can hit it on two pieces of equipment at the same time, that's even better. And even still, you know, we, we can't say for sure, okay, that's a ghost. Um, and something that I'm really proud of, you know, our group is we take it a different, you know, even a deeper layer. We really, really hit the um, historical research hard. You know, a lot of times if you see these like really um, big name, you know, places that everybody knows is haunted and they'll tell you these stories about, oh, this little girl named so-and-so. Well, okay, where did that name come from? Well, it came through the spirit box. Well, okay, is there any historical documentation that this little girl existed? Not that we found. (laughs) So we spend hours upon hours beforehand getting as much historical documentation, newspaper articles, genealogical records, anything we can find. And then any name that might come up on our boxes are, you know, through that, then we just really, really try to, you know, you know, can we connect that with the location? Gotcha. So you guys just went to, you went back to the old hospital on College Hill very Correct. recently. So when you do a revisit, what is your goal? 
Well, I know for my part this time around, I felt like we got in there. That's the first time we had ever been to that location back in July. And I don't think Teresa and I really knew what to expect. We had heard stories from it, but we had never been there. So when this we get in really the building, what was it? This is a really new location, too. Yeah. They had just opened last February. So not a whole lot of people have been in there yet. Mm -hmm. So when we get in there for the first time and things seem to start happening relatively quickly, you kind of get caught off guard and you get pseudo excited, whatever you want to call with it. And then you start kind of what I thought happened with us is we lost kind of a rhythm getting going where we would normally do things a specific way. But we got so excited from, I mean, part of it is the fact that this is a paid location. You go there. You don't want to go there, obviously, if you pay a decent amount for a ticket to go to one of these places and nothing happened. That would suck. Um, but then by having that stuff actually start to happen, it got a lot of us kind of motivated and excited. But some things that we would normally do to kind of say, hey, look, this may be paranormal. This may not be then at that point, we kind of lose that element. And that's one thing that I wanted to gain this time going back is going through and doing more of a general sweep of the building, um, getting an idea of what is in there, which one of the things about the building is there's very little electricity and stuff in there, but it's good to go through and check and make sure there's no kind of equipment that is on or hidden or anything like that. We've had places do that in the past where there you will go into places expecting this haunted location well they give you a haunted location but it's a manipulated haunt it's something that there are places that will hide equipment and stuff like that to give you those halloween haunted house scares to make sure you come back even though it's not paranormal so one of the things i wanted to do was just make sure we were doing our best to go through and find legitimate or what we can closely we can most closely call legitimate because like i said we thought we operate in a very scrutinized and very niche scientific field and to get back to the original question yeah that i mean that's what you want to do you want to hit a location multiple times um when you go back you want to any evidence you might have gathered from the first time you want to see if you can disprove it or recreate it um you want to hit areas that maybe weren't hot spots beforehand but then you found out like this last trip to the old hospital in college hill we had our cameras set up in certain locations because we know that's where we saw activity happen mm -hmm. last time um so we wanted to try to capture that mm -hmm. well we found out that when we had that camera set up in a certain location things kind of moved to another location um so i'm sure we'll be there again <laughs> and yeah. next time probably set up cameras facing that way to try yeah. to you know really hit the hot spots that might not necessarily have been hot spots before mm -hmm. so is, is there like an ideal time to go and and then also kind of on top of that where's where's the main sort of areas you're going to because you mentioned that this was a newer location that was paid for mm -hmm. correct like like someone else hosted it or are there more like I don't, I don't know how to say it, like residential calls or something where somebody wants you to check out something in their personal home. It's kind of hard right now in the years of COVID to really get into residential facilities. I mean, they used to be more common. We have done one here in the recent months. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we haven't done a whole lot of those. What I mean by those paid locations are like the places that are advertising you to come in as either part of the public or as a private group to do an overnight investigation. And you, they are charging you an admission for maintenance of the facility and whatever else you want to call on it. And we, a lot of those are out there right now. And some of them are getting to a point where it is becoming paranormal tourism. Uh, here in West Virginia, there are a couple major ones that are up. And I think in your all's area, like Eastern State is a big one up in that region. And that's the one that for many years, every ghost hunter type folk in the Northeast wanted to make it to Eastern State Penitentiary, the same as they wanted to get at Mansville, Ohio, or anywhere like that. We've got a couple here in West Virginia that do a lot of that same thing, where it is a paid admission to come in. You can either work as public or private, come in at your the day that they select or you select and they approve, and then you have the building to yourself for that evening or whatever. So there's a lot of those going on. We also have some smaller kind of pay-to-play kind of things. A lot of them are coming up. Um, I mentioned the Haymond House. Um, we have been there a couple times, and that is kind of operating as essentially a haunted Airbnb where you can go in and she has, the lady that owns it's the nicest thing on the planet. She has beds. She has a full kitchen in there. You can entertain yourselves. And in the evening when it's time to go, it's time to go. And you can just go through the building. Then at three o'clock in the morning, which is an absolute paradise or four o'clock in the morning for paradise for ghost hunter is being able to lay down in a bed and sleep for a couple hours before you have to drive home and break equipment down and all that before you go back. So there's some of those coming around. Um, there are some of these that are smaller pay to play that are locations that are like a business and they are having you come in they, you're getting the agreement to come in for the night and kind of check out the reports that they have in their business. So those things are coming up as well. There's kind of a blend. Now there are residential cases and sometimes we will get like no notices from some of these residentials, but you really have to be careful with the residential cases because you can be walking into a whole number of issues that may or may not be paranormal. So a lot of times we have to do something that is more along the lines of a pre-interview where we talk to folks and kind of figure out what's going on. Is this something that is possibly paranormal? And also we have to make sure which we were, we had issues with in the past, we have to be able to investigate because one residential case I remember quite Clearly, we really weren't able to investigate because what we seemed to run into was something that was us more taking care of the child on the location while the parents did their own thing. So we have to be very careful about taking residential cases because in general, they can go a couple different ways. And I'm just now getting back into doing residentials. Uh, my old group, we had to stop doing them completely um, several years ago because we're based out of Huntington and I don't know how much y'all know about Huntington um, but it got to the point where you know with the drug use and stuff it was just it was too dangerous it was too much mm -hmm. of a risk to bring our group into a private residence even mm -hmm. if we screened them you know as much as we could screen a person I mean we we were on one investigation and I mean these people were the nicest people ever they there was they were fine but they went out to get dinner while we investigated and we had one of their clients stop by. 
Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. You you I, mentioned like three four a.m. It is a great time for uh, paranormal hunters. Is that like the ideal? Is that three a.m. like the devil's haunting hour or something like that? That was the old legend. Is that that's the haunting hour or the devil's hour, or what have you? I don't know what it is. A lot of locations you go to, I don't know if it it could be something to do with the magnetic field of the planet and the uh, sun's position in the middle of the night and all that jive. I don't know with 100% certainty, obviously, but it seems like that two to four window, especially right around three, has been is very active for a lot of locations that we go to. I mean, we've been to two fairly recently, and both of them were pretty active at about two to three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it it makes no sense. I don't know if the sun position thing is that. It could be, but it's it's interesting because a lot of paranormal um, investigators will mention that kind of time frame as the time. It also could be that we're all getting loopy and tired at that point. I don't know <laughs> if that's possible. I mean, we laugh at it because it's like, oh, you know, the devil's hour. What you know? Does he take in? you know, time zones and daylight savings and all that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really is, you know, that goes back to, you know, you'd rather have more data than not enough. So, okay, what times are we having stuff? And it does seem to be that two to four window. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be another possibility. Um, we've been on the site for several hours at that point. Maybe we're getting kind of used to like the subtle little background of the building. Um, if there is something there, maybe they're getting used to us. And so, you know, we've got that kind of awkward phase out of the way. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can really kind of tell like what's normal for the building, what's not as normal. And they're used to us. They're comfortable with us at that point. I want a hot take from you guys right now on two locations. First location is Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Okay. And the second one is Harper's Ferry. Okay. Well, I will tell you that we have not had any luck getting into Lake Shawnee yet. I don't know. Did HPR ever get in there, uh, Teresa? We never did, we never did a formal investigation there, um, but we, we've driven past there. So I've got to ask you all, have you been there in person? Mm-mm. Okay. I'll, I'll save my comments for after Brian's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know about it. I mean, it, the hardest part of it is now, and here in West Virginia, I, you all have it a little bit up in Pennsylvania and stuff as well, but there's so much emphasis on the tourism aspect that yeah. these folks are trying to get as much as they possibly can. And when you look at like a place like Lake Shawnee that's down in Greenbrier County, which is a very, um, except for one person in a county, a very poor county. These folks are going to try and market whatever they can. And it just happens to be an old broken down amusement park that hasn't run in something like 40 years or something. I got, I can't remember even when it shut. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've never been there. Like I said, so I don't want to cast dispersions on them because until I get there, I can't say for sure. Um, I would be interested in checking it out, but I also know it is very difficult to get a hold of. Uh, we've had a lot of trouble trying to get a hold of anybody that works there to try to do something there. It's a little distance from us, so we have to be able to coordinate it. Um, and then you mentioned the other one was Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry, just given the history of the area, it would be hard to believe that there isn't some type of energy left behind. Now, what that is, 
I don't know, but I mean, when you think of that date in 1859 when John Brown raided that town and the entire town coming out with their rifles and shooting at him and his men being trapped in that uh, firehouse with nothing else to do, that would be pretty darn scary. And that's going to kind of leave a lot of uh, anger and hostility around. And then on the flip side, the people of Harper's Ferry in general were so tied to Virginia at that time that the idea of this guy coming up and coming over from Kansas, this abolitionist coming over here and raising rural hell on the border would have been very anger or um, trying to think anger inducing for the local population, which is why they came out with their rifles in the first place to chase him out. So there's going to be a lot of anger. There's going to be a lot of emotion. There's going to be a lot of hostility. And then that place saw the entirety of the civil war. Then you had, the floods and things like that that have damaged that town or done tremendous um, things to over the years. That's a national park. They don't touch it very much. They redo a building here and there. Sometimes that seems like that can stir things up a little bit. But that's, a, that's again, that's a part of their tourism outreach. When I don't blame them if you're trying to get anybody to these locations. I mean, it's perfectly to say, okay, it's haunted. Now, whether or not it is, I don't know. We can only make our best guesses on it. But I just, where the both of those are, there is such an emphasis on the paratourism that is starting up. And it's it's now getting to a position where I'm starting to see it, like, really take hold all over the United States. And here in West Virginia is no different because we have a lot of little unique locations like that that could be haunted and circumstances would dictate that they could be if that is true or false, whether or not that is actually a thing. And these folks are just kind of pushing it out the message to say, hey, look, you all, this stuff is becoming hot now. Come check us out. I mean, it's it's economics at this point. Okay, so back to Lake Shawnee. <laughs> <laughs> She's got something. <laughs> I, I've never investigated there. I've never had any interaction with the owner. So I, but when you see it like on TV or on the internet, you're like, oh my God, there is this like Scooby-Doo level haunted amusement park yeah. right here <laughs> in West Virginia. And so like, you've got to like flock to it. Um, so several years ago, we had to be down that way uh, for a business meeting and we decided to, you know, drive by. We didn't want to trespass. So we just drove by and we drove by. We're like, where's where's it at and suddenly we see it but you could barely see it because it was summer and there was lots of foliage out but like the two amusement rides that are left there's a um a swing ride and then there's a ferris wheel you could fit this ferris wheel in my living room i mean it is not like the big like I mean, it just looks like, you know, some dad built some, you know, really cool toys out for their kid out in, you know, in the front yard, and now they're falling apart and being reclaimed by nature. Um, so when you go to it, it's it, it's kind of disappointing to see at first, because it's not the Scooby-Doo level haunted amusement park. It's, you know, some broken down, rusted you know, metal and wood. It's, it's so small. And it's right there by the road, so you can see it, too, if you look close enough. <laughs> and it's not summertime. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, you know, for my website, I've researched this location. Mm -hmm. And there is some legitimate dark history involved. There was a massacre of um, 
Native Americans to a white early English settlement there um, where several children were brutally killed. But I don't understand why they just can't take that legitimate history. Also, there were like multiple drownings at the pool and the lake that used to be there. Um, so there's legitimate dark history there. But the story that everybody hears is the little girl seen on the swing who was killed when the swing bashed into a Coca-Cola truck that had pulled up to make a delivery. Yeah. Nobody that I have ever talked to that has lived in the area remembers that. Um, hours and hours of microfiche and newspaper archive research, nothing. There is no documentation to say that that ever happened. Um, so is it haunted? I don't know. I've never investigated there. I don't have any reason to believe that people who have seen things are not necessarily telling the truth, but the documentation doesn't match up some of the most popular stories. And it's disappointing. <laughs> um, it's it's always great when we can find something that does like match up with the stories. To back off that, Teresa, when you get a chance, tell them the story of when we went down to Beckley here recently and found the story of the little boy in the pool and how mm -hmm. that can kind of change positions over time. Right. Yeah. So we just did recently um, did an investigation of a business located in Beckley and the business was built directly atop the old pool of an old motel, um, which this motel has some dark, dark history. I mean, as a hotel and even the land before then. Uh, but one of the stories that the owner had heard was that um, a boy snuck in the pool after hours and jumped off the diving board, hit his head, passed away, drowned after he hit his head. Um, I couldn't find any documentation to back that up. Now, just because there isn't any that I could find doesn't mean that that didn't necessarily happen. But what I did find was that the country club that's literally within walking distance, I mean, it's right over the hill from it, that happened there. <laughs> um, Oh. There was a boy that, you know, snuck in, same age as, you know, what the owner had heard, um, hit his head. And fortunately, this boy did not pass away. Um, so, you know, we can't really say, okay, well, is the documentation just not available? Did they try to cover it up? Or did the person who told him the story get their facts mixed up? Misremember. Yeah. Yeah. And a similar thing happened with Old Hospital on College Hill. One of their main stories is this nurse who she was on her way to work, got into a car crash, was taken to her own ER and passed away. Um, I couldn't find any documentation of that. What I did find documentation of was there was a nurse and, you know, she she had a daughter who was also a nurse and she and her grandson dropped the daughter off at another um medical facility where the daughter worked and on their way back home uh this woman crashed her car into the tug river um in this horrific you know accident well this old man jumped in managed to save them um they got both of them to the hospital where the nurse worked so that was her own er that she was taken to and her injuries were pretty horrific and they were probably you know career ending but she lived another almost 50 years um wow. so we don't know if maybe people remember okay yeah this nurse was taken to her own er after this horrific car crash we never saw her again you know because she couldn't work 
she must have died. This must be, you know, a ghost. Um, so it's, I think it's fun <laughs> to try to <laughs> uncover these mysteries. And, but it's also super, super frustrating because, like, again, there just might not be documentation available mm-hmm. at this point on that story. I can't prove or disprove it at this point. Yeah. One of the hardest parts of it is, especially when a lot of folks have heard these stories for so long and maybe they're the location owner or whatever, and it's actually become part of their identity to kind of like show them that maybe we can't find evidence of that one, but we can find something similar that happened a couple hundred feet or a couple miles away Sometimes that can go one of two ways. That can be like somebody becomes really hostile. No, that's the way I remember it. That's the way I was told it. That's the way it happened. Or you'll get on the other side, the flip side, the person's like, oh, okay, cool. Well, now that gives me a little bit of something to go by. So that's something we also kind of kind of weigh too, because some of these, uh, some of the folks that we've talked to and discussed with over the years don't necessarily like their story being adjusted. I'm not surprised by that. I, I mean, it, yeah. it, if it's especially like a like a business or something that that might draw people there too, mm-hmm. um, they could have picked the location because of that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not surprised, but that that's definitely difficult. Teresa, um, do you have any research stories that like stood out? Like anything, any like super historic background of a place that you got really excited about or anything like that? Um. <laughs> I'm kind of like a, you know, I'm a ghost nerd anyway. So every investigation um, that I research for is like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. You know, this is so cool. And there's one, though, and it was it was kind of morbid in a way. Um, it was an investigation of a local. It was a privately owned business. Um, it's fairly uh, known, but he does not allow uh, investigations now. It's a dentist office in Huntington. And we did hear these stories from the owner about, you know, potential identities of, you know, the what the ghosts that they thought were there. And when I started researching it, they were true. <laughs> this is the point where they were, you know, that the research actually did match up and we were able to confirm, okay, well, yeah, this person died in the way that they said that they passed away um and you know there were some like minor discrepancies but the minor discrepancies kind of worked in our favor because they made more sense than what the original stories were um we had these different stories about the the main ghost girl there how did she die and it was really weird because there was three newspaper articles mentioning her death um, you know, from like the morning and evening edition and then the next day. And all three had a different cause of death. So we're like, okay, were they just completely ignorant about how she died? One had that she drank, you know, bad alcohol. This is during the days of prohibition. Um, one had that she fell down the stairs. And another one said that she died of like, I think it was like pneumonia or something. I don't know, something completely off the wall. So it's like, okay, did she get drunk and fall down the stairs? I mean, did she, you know, what, what, how did she really die? And then pulling the death certificate was a fourth cause of death. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, and I've learned so much about our local history, just, you know, from my work in paranormal investigation. Um, 
you know, I, I love it. It's <laughs> it's my favorite part. You know, I know a lot of people get into it because of like the gadgets are fun and that's you know, collecting evidence is really fun. I love to do the research behind it. We're both history nerds, like that's our thing. So that's where it kind of fits in for us. I mean, any, any specials, Brian? Any favorites of yourself? Uh, favorites, favorite locations, or is uh, I mean, anything really. I was thinking more of like history background that kind of okay. like something cool. So one of the things that's always kind of fun is hitting the bigger locations. Um, there's a couple of them here in West Virginia, like West Virginia Penitentiary. And then um, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which used to be the former Weston State Hospital for the mentally disabled or whatever. And what they what's interesting is some of the stories that go along with those places, like former workers and stuff like that that have been there that can tell you the story. That's the thing that I find the most fascinating is talking to the folks that have actually spent some physical time in there before it was a location and saying, here is what we remember happened. And then if we can find the stories that seem to match up with what their remembrances are or something that they have been told over the years, then we have a little bit more of a credit. I always, the, the thing that I like the most, the same kind of historical aspect is talking to the people that were there, the people that experienced it, looking back at any kind of sources that we can find, especially primary sources of that time and seeing if we can locate any clues to whether or not these stories actually were true or not. Because one of the things you all know as well as I do is that with these legends, there's often some element of truth. It's just you have to be able to dig it out somewhere to figure out what is the closest thing to the truth that we can find. And when you are able to dig out those little bits and pieces of stories like, um, I think, was Teresa, if memory serves me, at the West Virginia Pen, Charles Manson, the story was for years that he spent some time there. But what actually came out was that it was his mother, wasn't it? Yeah, his mother was there for a brief time. And then he wrote the letter to the warden saying, hey, yeah. I would love to be transferred here. And they're like, hell no. <laughs> and that's one of their favorite stories to tell up there is they have the letter out on display in this front uh, museum type room that he wrote to his, to the museum, uh, or not the museum, shoot, the prison director, and say, hey, look, get me here. That's the stuff that's fun about it. It's like, oh, these little stories aren't actually stories. They did happen. Maybe they've been twisted or something like that over the time, but it's kind of like putting, putting the clues back together. That's the fun part. It's like saying, okay, well, this happened. This is a little bit different. Let's me try to kind of flex it back and then see if we can get closer to like a ground zero of the story itself. That's so fun. So it's more than just a paranormal investigation. You're also investigating the history and sort of making things connect. I think if you are any reputable group, one of the things you have to be able to do is to look at the historical aspect of the, the site, see if you can prove or disprove any of it, because ultimately a lot of these cases... I'd say a legitimate probably 70% are a lot of times they are manipulations of stories from homeowners, business owners, or something like that, because there's some element of gain there. But if you can find those stories that match up, that is the interesting part. And I think if you're a reputable group, one of the things you have to do is be able to look up the history and see if any of that stuff makes sense and to at least inform 
the property owner. Now, whether or not they take that evidence that you provide to them as, okay, cool, now I know a little bit more, or what What do you tell me? I know that's not true. Then that's another side of it as well. But that's one of the kind of the gambles we have to take, and I think that's one of the things that's necessary with doing this is being able to make sure that your stories and you are providing the best overall research on the location to tell these folks, hey, this is what we know. Does that mean it is 100% certain? Absolutely not. But this is what we know. This is what we can prove to you right now. And go take it as you will. And, you know, we do provide that caveat. You know, we make sure that they know that this isn't the end of all ends. You know, records disappear all the time. Even primary sources can be wrong. I've got a typo on my birth certificate, you know, so that might cause when some issues one day if I'm a ghost someday. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we want to inform the owner, um, give them our documentation. We make sure that you know all the owners like have you know the documentation that we can provide for them, and just you know go from there. This this is a never-ending project for me. Um, I've worked on cases years ago and then I'll come across something that, you know, adds to the story and I'll be like, Oh, you know, so research is, it never ends. Um, all these locations to me are open cases. That's awesome. Uh, so I've got a little more ghost kind of question. So when you experience like your hauntings, are they mostly residual? And also, could you explain what residual hauntings are to the guests on, or the people that are watching or listening? Do you want to take this, Teresa? Do you want me to? I don't care. Oh, yeah, I can start, and then you can fill in if I miss okay. anything. Um, so a residual in the basic, basic terms is, is like a videotape re- replaying itself over and over again. Somehow, somehow conditions were correct in the world that it was able to record an image, a sound, sometimes both, of something that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the ones we get a lot of is like the environmental factors. Uh, Like certain types of rock are more susceptible to storing any kind of electrical or electrical energy. Same thing with like rivers and water and stuff like that. There's a theory that hauntings are more common around a water source because that is fueling it. Don't know, but that's something that I think Teresa, she was right there around that area. I just figured I'd jump in on that. So these types of hauntings are not going to be ones that will interact with you. Um, They don't seem to have any intelligence. They're literally just a recording on the environment. And for years and years and years, like, that was the go-to. Um, because there, there's so many different explanations um, what causes a residual haunting. Um, you know, you can get really deep into physics with string theory. Um, or, you know, you can just, you know, do the, you know, the, the quartz. Um, if the area has a lot of quartz or limestone or certain minerals in the earth, that can somehow cause this imprint um so for a lot of years most people i don't want to even say assumed but it was like yeah that was the majority of hauntings were these residual hauntings 
Um, and I don't know if it's just the crazy times that we're in lately, but <laughs> Brian can help me on this. Does this not seem like that most of the stuff that we've dealt with lately is not residual? <laughs> yeah, we seem to be running into a lot of situations here recently where there seems to be some level interaction. Now, those can vary from thing to thing, whether it be a simple little blip on the K2 meter, which we always we have to take with a grain of salt because so many little factors can influence that. And also the piece of equipment itself, because it's a bipolar, a bi one level machine, it can be thrown off balance very easily. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But what we were running into, a lot of the things that we have come into here in the past, I'd say year since we really kind of got going, we are running into quite a few things that are more, they seem to be able to respond to you in one way or another, whether it's to show just a brief image of themselves, whether it's to like get inside of your head and seemingly be able to manipulate something. But that's one of those things that like, can I take it as evidence or not? I don't know, but it's an experience. And that's, that's a lot of what we do is trying to get as much evidence out of the limited experience as we do have. We run into a lot of things here recently that seem to be able to manipulate or do or interact with you more commonly. I don't know what it is, but it's that does seem to be accurate. Are they friendly or malevolent? Well, if you're talking about residual, I mean, they're, they're nothing. There's, there's oh, I, meant, no I meant the intelligent ones because... Yeah, I feel like the intelligent ones can interact. Luckily, so far, I have never ran into anything that I would call truly malevolent or evil. Now, if if we're going on the assumption that a ghost is a spirit of a living person that has passed on, that's just one theory. <laughs> There's plenty of them out there. But, um, you know, that seems to be like a pretty widespread theory of what a ghost is. Just like people, you know, there are nice kind people there are people that are complete a-holes and there are people that when they're confused or hurt or upset act out in certain ways and you know we we've definitely experienced things that i wouldn't necessarily call happy positive you know happy-go-lucky ghost but i've i've you know i've been doing this for over 20 years i have never felt threatened or you know like i've dealt with something that was like straight up demonic or anything like that yeah one of the things we did here recently there seemed to be something on location that wasn't what i would say was either human but i wouldn't say it was like demonic either it just looked like some kind of a leftover from history from some animalistic thing over many 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 years ago or what have you but it was like it was more just unsettling i don't think it was necessarily that it is i've never really ran into anything that really threatens me i've ran into things that do seem to be able to manipulate like how you feel and what you experience i've never had anything like straight demonic but we had the thing in beckley here very recently that it just it seemed generally curious maybe would be the word Teresa. that was just kind of odd i mean when you start hearing things that I mean, if you all picture yourselves right now, think of like a lizard walking on the wall and hearing footsteps coming from the side of the wall that you cannot explain because it is a vertical wall. That's very different. 
and that's something that is not necessarily scary, but it's almost like a, what the hell is this? I really would be interested to know what is doing that, because that is probably not what I would call human. And that's not typically the norm of like no. you know most ghost investigations and stuff. That that whole case was something that you know a lot of it was really off the wall kind of what are we dealing with? Yes. And I think a lot of it was because this that that whole area was so saturated with violence and tragedy for so many years that that energy was kind of so strong that it, you know, literally manifested into some kind of sludge that we were able to pick up on. So do you guys have any crazy stories? I know you had mentioned um, Avinik, if I'm not mistaken. Teresa, I'll let you take this one because I remember it. Um. So, yeah, it was at the same location. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we went into this investigation. It was at an antique store. Um, awesome owner, awesome location. Um, it, you know, was the site of this old motel on this, you know, super horrible dark background. And so we go into this knowing that, okay, we've got the elements of the location itself, the land, Plus, anything that might be attached to all of these antiques that are in here. And these mm -hmm. antiques, so many of them were, you know, war relics, um, police auction stuff. So even, you know, the stuff inside had a dark history. So we were kind of prepared from our pre-interview, like, okay, you know, we, we've got some opposing forces here. We've got the land itself. We've got um, the stuff that's inside this location. We had no idea that we'd be dealing with a Slavic demon cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so the, the owner, you know, gave us his background and everything. And this didn't come up in our initial um, interview. He said nothing about it. And I was, you know, with some of the ladies out in the motel area. And I come in and one of our members kind of pulls me aside and he's like, oh my gosh, Teresa, we saw this little black, um, demon thing and i'm like what are you talking about i'll tell you exactly what it was and then i'll let her continue it so i was in the back room with the owner and the owner told us when all else fails in the location to always check the mirrors idea that these things can manipulate the mirrors or manifest themselves in mirrors for you to see when you may not necessarily be able to see them otherwise okay so he puts me in front of this old, um, it's like a reproduction type bar mirror, but it was like one of the Victor Victrola ones with the dog and stuff from many years ago. And he puts me in front of it and he tells me, he's like, just wait here. And sure enough, I'm looking at the, like the left side of the mirror and I start seeing like a movement out of the back corner of my eye. And I had two of our guys that were standing over here behind us. And they were kind of checking out. There were some old antiques and then like an antique couch and then some old clothes on clothes racks. And the clothes racks were right behind them. And as I look, I start seeing just a little bit of a shade of like a movement. And I turn my attention away from the left to the right just long enough to see what looks like a cat monkey 
thing. I don't know how big. It was only maybe 18 inches tall from what I could tell. It was standing behind one of my members on the clothes rack. And I turned around. And this thing, like, jumps down and runs. And you could see physically where it ran to. Because it was there were several big Chinette cabinets back there. And they all have that, like, area underneath where it's dark and can hide. And it looks like the thing runs underneath there. I go and check where I saw it run, and it's not in there. Through the evening, we had numerous times where this thing came out. Again, later on, apparently the owner told me that I freaked the thing out because apparently he has a complete interaction with this thing where he feeds it care. No, just wait. Well, I'll let Teresa hit a lot of this because she is better storyteller on this part than I am. But again, later in the evening, he said that I upset it, that I freaked it out, that I got so excited in the fact that I saw this thing. So he tells me, he's like, go out here and I want you to calm down. Okay, okay, I'll do it. We went and did something else. And he said, now you want to go try this again? And he takes me and he takes me back to this back room. And we are back there just taking some of our equipment through our K2 and EMF meters. And we're checking different things back there. And I turn around for a moment to face the other wall, turn back around to address one of my guys that is over in the doorway where the owner has this little white lab pup that he apparently loves. The Ovenick apparently loves his dog. Mm -hmm. Turn around just long enough, and behind one of our members, this little cat thing was once again standing on a stack of 45 records on a cabinet looking at my guy like kind of curious or whatever. And then it's like as moment or two after you get a lock on it and you see it, it bolts and hides. And we saw it throughout the night. Teresa, I'll let you. Okay. So I, like I said, I was outside in another separate building when all this was going on. And so I come in, you know, they tell me what had happened. I'm like, well, I want to see the little cat monkey thing too. <laughs> <laughs> I went into the, you know, the room where they had seen him by myself and sat on the antique couch for a while. And I'm sitting there and sitting there and nothing's happening. And at one point, I kind of feel like maybe something had jumped up on the couch behind me. But it was just it was so light that I couldn't really say if it was anything. And I'm getting kind of depressed because I want to see it, too. Like all these other people saw it. I want to see it. Um, so I asked out loud. I was like, you know, if you're in here, may I please see you? And then a little bit more time goes by, and I kind of glance over my shoulder, and I'm not even sure if it was the same coat rack. I'm sure it was, because there's only like two or three of them in there. Um, I saw what looked like either a little cat or a little monkey, like completely black, but I could see it's like, you know, kind of like tail coming down um, and pointing ears. And I was like, okay, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. And it just kind of like dissipated. And about that time, the owner comes in, and he's like, have you had any luck seeing it? And I'm like, well, you know, I think I may have seen it, but I'm not 100% sure. And he's like, well, it's right here in this back room if you want to see it. And I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> I mean, right. So I'm back there and he's like, can you see it? It's right there. And in the storage tote that had some stuff, you know, some merchandise that was getting ready to be priced. I swear to God, it looked like I have a black cat named Ichabod. And it looked just like Ichabod was hiding in this tote. And, you know, you, you could see the mouth. You could see its little white fangs sticking out. You could see its green eyes that blinked at one point. And I'm, you know, I'm in 
shock. Like I'm staring at this thing and I don't want to get too close because I'm afraid I'll like scare it off. And he's like, it's right there. He's like, do you see it? I'm like, I think, I, I don't know. I don't know if I see it. And I was having like this real like personal struggle. <laughs> I mean, so part of me is like, oh my God, I, I have been given this great opportunity to see this creature. And another part, like the logical side is like that cannot be you know what i think he it has is. to I, have a black cat hidden in here yeah. that was my initial <laughs> thought is there has to be a black cat in this place there is no cat in that place we looked canvas the whole place cat boxes and stuff like that there was nothing like that so so he <laughs> he kept this a secret from you guys going into it like he didn't mention it at all no he didn't even think to mention he told me after the fact he said look dude if i i'd have known that you were interested in this i'd have told you about more of it I said, but I just thought to mention that it is here. He, he equates it to something. His family history dates back over to like Croatia, Slovenia, Slovakia, somewhere like that. And his family came over as immigrants to the coal mines. And they said that it followed his family over from that region. And it was like a family. They're equated one of two ways. They can either be malevolent or benevolent depending on the situation they're more malevolent when you don't take care of them and don't provide them sustenance to keep them up the old story from slovenia i think it is is that if you don't appease the animal it will burn your house or barn down so the family apparently has taken care of this thing for many years and he said it passed on him and he said he i asked him about it after the fact i was like when was the first time you ever experienced it? he said well when i was about four or five when i started becoming aware he said I, the thing has just always been there it's it's nothing that i've really paid that much attention it was just a story that went on in the family and he was talking about it and he just he did legitimately it's just like he's like yeah i'll tell you all about it now he just didn't he didn't say anything about it beforehand so that was completely different when we got in there and that was something that we were not expecting and then you see that as compared to what you would traditionally think is like your ghost hunting evidence that you would expect to see so did he go into detail at all like like i'm just curious what's what's involved in in appealing to it and and taking care of it so, I don't know what all he told you, Teresa, but he told me the thing loves pancakes, and I'll let Teresa tell you. Stories. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where it comes from, but yeah, um, yeah. The the original stories was the, the, these were like I don't want to say demon, but that's how a lot of literature called it. They called it like a demon or an elemental or a you know nature spirit, and it would attach itself to a family. And these particular ones, the Alvnicks, were known to haunt barns or granaries. And so you had to make an offering to it or it would burn your barn down or eat all of your grain. Um, so there was two things that it really, really liked as its offerings. One were roosters and the other was, I can't remember what the name of it is. It was in Russian. Uh, yeah. But Blini it was or something like that. Yeah. It's a, it's a Russian pancake, basically. Um <laughs> so it's a that's legend. You offer up to it to appease it and it, it is considered if you actually see one of these especially on new year's eve um that is it's good luck 
Um, and since, you know, several of us saw it, hopefully that's, you know, good luck for SRI's feature. But that's not the last interaction we had with this little thing um, that night. Um, at one point, I was sitting alone in that room, and uh, Brian was in the doorway to the office area. <laughs> and he heard something and made this noise, like, mm-hmm. And it was like it mimicked it, like, perfectly. Like It was, like, know, right behind me, and it was it was like my same voice but magnified. And I was like, wait a minute, does he have like some kind of like a stereo back here that's recording audio? I checked my pockets to make sure I didn't have like a piece of digital uh, voice recorder or anything going. And I didn't have anything. And it sounded just like me, but it came through. It had to be two, two times louder than my traditional like voice that I use. It was like, and I turned around and I looked at Teresa. I was like, did you just hear that? We both responded at the same time. I don't know. And then, you know, we found out through later research that, okay, yeah, the Ophanic is known to mimic, it, it will mimic like a dog's bark. That's, you know, the, the big thing that it will mimic, but it normally doesn't mimic human voices. So maybe it was something else. We kind of feel like it was the Ophanic, um, but we still, we weren't done with it that night. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had pretty much all of us sitting in that back room um, and we were, you know, listening to one of our, ghost boxes and you know he was answering some questions and stuff and the owner and um, one of his friends who was a psychic were over and they were asking it some questions and it seemed to be that whatever spirits may have been there they were kind of intimidated by this little creature um you know it, this thing was very protective of i think the owner and of the store and so it makes sense that you know this they might be intimidated by this otherworldly thing that, you know, we, we can't really explain. But at one point, you know, it, they kept saying the word salt. Salt kept coming over and over and over again for some reason. And so when they asked it, well, do you want us to leave salt out for the Ovnik? Like, it was a resounding, like, yes. Um, so we had one of our members take a little bit of salt, put it in the corner where the little Ovnik hangs out, and I swear, we heard this little, and the dog was gone at this point, so it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, the dog or anything. We heard this cute little, like, delightful squeak. Like, you know, something like it was real happy and made a squeak sound. And we're like, well, I guess he liked his salt. <laughs> wow. It, it was so weird. Wild. <laughs> and at the end of the night, when we were getting ready to pack up our equipment, we started getting ready together, I think, our stuff around six-ish, Teresa. And so we went to go lights on in the facility and I went to the back room where he says is the primary domain of this thing and flipped on the light. And I swear to you all, just for just a moment or two, it sounded like I heard two little footsteps up in the roof going pat, 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 as I turned the light on like it was trying to get away in the light. It didn't want to be seen. One of the weirder experiences in doing this in 20 odd years is seeing that little cat monkey thing. So I got to give Travis uh, kudos for that down at Deep End Antiques in Beckley because he uh, he really hit us with a new one there. Yeah, I mean, as a skeptic, like I'm still like internally processing this whole thing. And like, I don't I don't know. That was that was a game changer for me. I can't imagine that. That's that's crazy. We couldn't either beforehand. <laughs> that's a new one for me. I 
I, I consider myself a pretty good skeptic, but also like there's a point like what? Like, did I legit just see that? Because I I, I know I did, but mm-hmm. I still can't believe it. Yeah, that's that's such an awesome find. Uh, so so speaking of like relics and things like that, do you find that those are more of the things that are like haunted or do you think it's more places or is it a mix? Well, once again, and Teresa can kind of add in on this as well, it would be hard-pressed for us to prove one way or another. I would be willing to suspect that if my theories and the theories, the general theories are all right, that energies can be directed on whatever the person or whatever felt was valuable to it at the time. So if it was a little girl's doll... And a little girl got sick, and that doll was the most important thing in the world. It would kind of make sense that that might be the thing. Whereas maybe this old man who had spent seventy years in the same house and built it with those his own two hands and stuff like that, and had lived there for so long, and that was his identity as much as him, that would make sense to kind of be like that is an important thing to him. Maybe that is an imprint of him on that environment or whatever. So, I mean, I think it can be varied depending on the circumstance. I tend to believe the locations more personally, but I'm not to discredit the fact that certain certain objects could be that important to something that they choose to stay behind with it. It's, I can't discredit that because it does seem to make sense. It's just the, the burden of proof there. And I agree. I mean, it, it does really tend to be more tied to the location occasionally we'll come across a case where the activity seems more tied to the person themselves and wherever that person goes, they're like a battery that's going to jumpstart, you know, whatever may be latent in a location. As for objects, you know, personally, like over the years that I've been doing this, it's been fairly rare that we've had an actual object that could be legitimately well i don't even want to say legitimately because it can't be proven but like you know believably tied to a haunting i think with objects what more of you're getting with is like brian said like an imprint maybe that person isn't necessarily attached themselves to the object but they've imprinted their energy on it to the point where if you pick that object up you know you can you can feel that energy coming off of it you can pick up you know, details of the story behind that object. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these are the questions that we struggle with every day as investigators and researchers and trying to figure out for ourselves. So would you like, like kind of building off of that a little bit, like any type of movie object, like I, I feel like situations like Annabelle, the doll is so popular. Do you, do you blindly believe anything like that or, or is everything skeptical then for you guys until you experience it? I'll let you take it first, Teresa. Um, I try not to blindly believe anything. I mean, I, I know that there are things out there that are worth studying further. Um, I know that there's not one nice, neat explanation for all ghosts or paranormal activity. I know there's probably like multiple explanations that you know can cover what we as people 
perceive or label as ghosts. Um, stuff like Annabelle, this, this will get kind of real metaphysical. Um, you know, the, especially with, with Annabelle itself, the belief is that she's not necessarily haunted, but she is a vessel um, that some sort of entity is taken over and is kind of like hiding it. Yeah. Um, and I, I know you all mentioned the Warrens earlier. I respect the Warrens for their contributions to paranormal investigation, but I absolutely do not agree with about 99% of mm -hmm. their ideology when it comes to it. Um, to them, and you know, this is fine, this was their perception. If it wasn't not paranormal, it was a demon. Um, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> there was no element of disproving. Uh, honestly, from everything I've read and experienced over the time, and having the limited experience of like just studying the Warrens and their techniques and stuff like that, I have very rarely ever seen them disprove something. Mm. There's a lot of folks out there like that. That is not a discredit upon them alone. There is a lot of people out there that I want to really, 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 really get that good evidence that something is there, but they're not really interested in making sure that there is no proof of that actually being in place. In our last episode, we did the devil made me do a trial. Okay. And I'm curious to see what you guys think of that, because after doing a little bit of research, like at first I started as like a full true believer and the more research I did, the more skeptical I became. Mm -hmm. I think that was the way it kind of was with um, the Amityville situation and stuff like that. As you hear the story, the story is so profound that it leaves an imprint upon you for the first time you get it. But then when you start to actually look at the history and the story itself, there's a lot of things that don't quite mesh. And then it's hard to maintain that level of that weirdly childish exaltation at the idea that this story, the way it was supposed to have happened, did happen. But then as you start chipping away at that, there you start to lose a lot of that same oomph or pizzazz the story has. That's kind of the way it's been for me over the years, is just kind of looking at those things and seeing how that kind of changes. It's pretty often that I think when a lot of any kind of reputable investigation group or anybody that's a historical researcher wants to do to make sure that burden of proofs there is that's so critical. And mm -hmm. that's also the hardest part of it. That makes sense. I, I mean, also with, with the Warrens, like the, there's no money to be made in disproving any of these stories. No. Their stories have become mainstream paranormal. Yeah. And you're never going to go away with them. And I'm not even going to say that everything they experienced wasn't true. I don't know. I wasn't put in a position to know. I can look at the way they conducted themselves for their, their investigative side. And I can make assertions off of that based off of my own experience. And I'm fair to do that. I can't cast disparaging on them because, like I said, I wasn't them. I wasn't able to like be there when they were doing their investigations. And also, I'm not in a position to judge them because they were going by their time frame. Their time in history was different than ours now. We have a lot more equipment, a lot more things that are out there to possibly give us a better clue. Those folks had very limited for their time in the 60s and 70s. 
So it's not really, it's something that is, we have to keep in mind, we have to be aware of, but also I can't like become a slave to the moment and understand that, look, their perceptions in the 60s and 70s were different than mine. So they may have legitimately experienced it and it just looks different to me now because of my own cultural biases that are in place. That's the same thing we have to do as a historical researcher, especially when you're looking at any kind of primary source document or anything like that. Being able to pull out the evidence and not just the stories that have no kind of backing to it, to get that best evidence, then to kind of push that to mainstream. That's the hardest thing to do in historical research, and that's also the most important. So I've got a question that kind of ties in with uh, like what we were talking about with how the Warrens were back then. And they were like pretty religious. Right. Mm -hmm. And you guys have mentioned that you guys are very historic. Do you think mm -hmm. you guys had like a religious upbringing, which sort of put you this way towards like the ghost hunting? Or do you think religion doesn't really have much to do with the industry now? And it's more of histories like skeptics. There's so many complexities to that, Teresa. I'll let you start. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I, you know, I never grew up in a religious household. I'm not religious now. Um, and I think that kind of helps me in a way to stay objective. But when you're dealing with the paranormal, you can't completely cut religion out of it. No. Um, because so much of the historical background of what people believe ghosts are you know directly ties in with their religious beliefs uh, when we are working with a client we have to understand what their religious beliefs are and what those religious beliefs say about what they're experiencing so we can kind of empathize with them know what they're going through and know how to best help them even if it kind of goes against what we believe, <laughs> um, you know, my religious beliefs about what a certain entity is have no bearing on the fact if we're dealing with a client who is absolutely convinced 100% without a doubt that they're dealing with something demonic. Um, and so, you know, we, we try to educate them as best as we can, um, try to you know, give them some comfort in that, oh, well, okay, let's look at it this way, but then also work with their beliefs, um, network with other groups, with other, you know, church officials from different religions if we have to, to make sure that our clients are comfortable and okay with what's going on. And the same can be said that if we're dealing with entities, um, you know, our, not this past investigation at the old hospital on College Hill, but our first investigation, we had a ghost ask us to pray for it. And thank God we had somebody there who could because I don't, I mean, I, I couldn't remember the entire Lord's Prayer if I had to. Um, but, you know, we have theories that we've come across that a lot of ghosts won't move on. They're stuck in a location because they're absolutely terrified of what's going to happen to them if they do move on. They're afraid that something they did in life is going to make certain that, you know, they're going to hell and not heaven. And so they'd rather stay where they are. Mm -hmm. um, so for years, that was always the kind of mantra of scientific researchers. 
leave religion out of it. Leave religion out of it. Well, I realistically, you can't. I mean, you have to have an understanding. And, you know, you'd have to try to stay objective, but you absolutely have to have, like, a working understanding of mm-hmm. religious beliefs. I think that's fair, completely. It, it makes sense. I, I mean, just the the whole spiritual aspect of it is completely understandable from a client's perspective. Brian, do you, you have anything you want to add? Oh, okay. I was waiting for something that wasn't there. Um, so I personally am not what I would call a religious person either. Didn't really grow up in that kind of household. Never really put that much emphasis on it. Uh, I had parents and stuff that were involved a little bit here and there. Never really kind of imprinted itself on me for whatever. I'm not opposed to looking at it because one of the things with science in general, the general consensus rule of science, is that nothing can be disproven. So we can't necessarily push anything aside. We have to be open-minded, like Teresa said, to anything or any possibility. And I mean, if you think about a situation like she was talking about, somebody that was in their lifetime extremely religious, extreme Southern Baptist or whatever like that, it's highly likely that if they feel like they've done something, they may not want to go to the other side because of what could happen. And also it makes sense because at least we know that that person would have possibly felt like that according to what we know about who they were as a person and their religious beliefs. Because if you look at American history, one of the things that goes right along with the entire United States and everything that happened here was things like the Great Awakening and where all these people got into all of that religious fervor and stuff like that. And there was a large portion of the population that was heavily religious, even up until the mid-1950s. And then you started seeing a gradual decline in overall church membership and all that stuff. So we have to be cognizant that these people lived in a different time, and therefore we have to be willing to at least understand that their worldview was different than ours, and that helps them make their lives the way it was. And that's how it was part of their existence. So therefore, if it was part of their existence, if by nature a lot of these hauntings are left behind, then that stuff is going to be probably left behind, at least to some degree, with these folks either. So we always have to be aware of that. And I'm, I'm one of those type in science that the unfortunate thing with science is that there is almost nothing we can prove with 100% certain. On the flip side, we should never push things aside as not important because just because they're not important to us with our cultural bias and who we are as a person does not reflect them at that time or this person in that event in their life. There's so many variables there that mathematically it would seem like completely improbable that that does not factor into at least some of these kind of situations, paranormal experiences as such. So would you guys ever end up collaborating with like a priest, a rabbi or some other religious, or even would you end up collaborating with other ghost hunting teams? Well, we have reached out a little bit, and then I'll let Teresa jump in as well. Uh, one of the, We've reached out to a lot of different groups around us. Um, 
West Virginia Paranormal Investigations based out of the northern part of the state. We have a fairly friendly relationship with the founders of it. We have relationships with other groups through different people that we know. And we had one lady from a different group that actually came with us to the investigation with the Ovnik at Beckley. And she's from another group. So we collaborate a decent amount with other groups, especially when these groups have similar profiles and similar kind of mission statements, I guess you could say, where all of us seem to be, or at least a lot of us seem to be trying to go in the same direction, although at different intervals, obviously. But we try to go in the same direction, and it makes good sense to try and collaborate because, like I said, we live in an extremely fractured and extremely skeptical climate towards what we are actually trying to look for. And there's all, there's no proof in it, period. So to work with other groups at least gives us a chance, at least if you would think about it logically, gives us a better chance if we are all working together to find something rather than just trying to go at it alone and then been heavily scrutinized because you're not willing to work with other people in the same field. I think that can be a part two as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, peer review, networking is going to go even, you know, it's more important in furthering this field than even creating, you know, great new gadgets and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we need different perspectives. Uh, we need people from different backgrounds, people from different points of view, from even, you know, different religious backgrounds, um, you know, to compile our data and to take a look at all this data and try to make sense of it from, you know, different ways. Um, I'm absolutely not opposed to working with anybody who is willing to respectfully work with us. Um, you know, we don't want to go out with a bunch of, you know, drunken frat boys or something that, you know, we're just, <laughs> you know, going to scream at ghosts and, you know, not take it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, religious leaders, I, I would love to work with different religious leaders, not only to, you know, get their perspective, but to make sure that we have somebody in case we do have a client that we need to refer them to. Um, we've, you know, even though we are a scientific based group, um, we work with psychics, we take their information just as we would any other data. We take it into consideration. We try to back it up, try to, you know, double cross it to make sure that, you know, it's being backed up by something else. Um, you know, and it's, it's never the end to it all ends, you know, it's just, a, it's a piece of the puzzle that we're trying to put together. Gotcha. What would you, so you'd mentioned you'd meet with anybody kind of like that's getting into it. What would you kind of suggest for someone that's just learning about paranormal investigation? Like maybe one of our listeners is listening and was like, oh my God, like I want to get into this. What are some suggestions that you guys have? You want to start? I'll let you start on this one. <laughs> um, usually I tell people like, don't go out and buy a bunch, a bunch of equipment at first. Um, find either a reputable group or a pay to play, you know, just, you know, take some stuff that you would have around the house, you know, even your phone, although it doesn't have the best 
like recording abilities and can sometimes interfere with EMF readings and stuff. But, you know, if you don't have anything else, your phone can take pictures, video, voice recordings. Um, there's a ton of apps that really scientifically they don't do a whole lot, but they're not any better or any worse than, you know, some of like the actual equipment that people spend hundreds of dollars uh, mm -hmm. to purchase. So there's a lot you can do with your phone, but, you know, just if you're really getting into it and really interested, don't buy a whole lot at first. Kind of find out what you're interested in. Find a mentor, find a group you can work with or, you know, a local place. Um, just read everything you can find. Watch podcasts like this one. Mm. Um, you know, watch different videos. Everybody's got a YouTube channel these days. And there's some really good content about, you know, paranormal investigation and equipment and stuff. And just, you know, don't ever take anything for granted because, like I said, you know, I've been in this field for 20 years and it has changed so much even in those 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like back in, you know, when I first started, people were like, oh, my gosh, you know, orbs, orbs, the orbs were ghosts. Um, and it, it took several years before people finally realized, oh, no, that's just your crappy digital camera that's causing this. <laughs> Dust, dust, and, dust. And you know, you'll see things like, you know, fluctuate and stuff. So never stop learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Brian can fill in. Uh, there's so much information. That, yeah, you know, it's, it's almost like information overload these days because now we've been doing this. I think most haunted came on sometime in the early 2000s, like 2001, 2001. Since that time when Paranormal TV got out there, there have been so many different groups that have contributed any number of different things from any number of different perspectives. One of the things that I would tell anybody that wants to get involved is to reach out to groups that are established and try to just pick the brain of the folks that are there. A lot of folks have been doing this for a very long time and have a lot of different experiences and a lot of different things that they can give you tools and ideas to kind of go by. Same thing as Teresa, don't go out and buy thousands of dollars equipment the first thing, because realistically, there's no, there's, unless you are one of a select few folks, you're not going to make any kind of money off this. So you don't want to go into debt doing something you love, because then it becomes something that you don't love. It becomes something that becomes more of a chore. And then that that's negative in its own right, because that's taking something or somebody that was really interested in the field and kind of pushing them aside. So don't start out with expensive equipment. Make sure that you go into it with an open mind. Be able to stretch your boundaries a little bit and to think, maybe I need to think a little bit beyond my normal parameters to be able to understand what is happening or what is happening to these people or our clients or what have you, because you can go in with a combative attitude from the outright and you know, you know, the owner of the property or whatever is full of BS and they're just trying to sell you the story so they can get people in their business. You have to be willing to at least be able to go in there with a solid head and go in there. And if nothing else, you do your due diligence to do the best job that you can and then let everything else be as it may. Those are the biggest things I would tell anybody. Don't buy expensive equipment, open mind and reach out to folks. Get 
involved. Read, do stuff like that because it's so critical to having any kind of concept of how to do this. And also, I would also mention looking up or trying to reach out and learn from groups that seem to be doing it the right way. You know when groups are trying to do this the right way and groups that are just either into it for the cheap scare or something nefarious. And you can see both of those happening very easily under circumstances, especially in the world we live in. Be willing to reach out and look for groups that don't just necessarily just look great to you on TV. Make sure you're learning about them. You're getting an idea of what they stand for. And then if they match how you feel, reach out to them because most of us that do this on a day-to-day basis, we are going to be willing to work with you and we will help you in whatever way we can. I've got two of my former students that have, one of them is a full-time member of SRI. He was a former student of mine when I taught many years ago. And he expressed interest in doing this one day. And I talked to him. I said, look, we're going to do this. You can join us on this. And we worked with him and gradually taught him how to use equipment and things like that. He's become more comfortable at it. So that's the same thing that can happen for a lot of folks, especially if you fall into the right group. You can learn a lot from these people that have been experienced, and it becomes something that you really, really enjoy. And I think it's something that he would attest today that he really, really enjoys doing. And it's just from having that interaction and that experience from working with folks like Teresa and I that got him to where he needs to be. And we have another member and how I met her was when she was a senior in high school, she reached out to me because she was doing her senior research project on paranormal investigation. So, you know, I was her mentor and, you know, kind of taught her some things, did some paperwork. And now, you know, she's a valuable member of our team. I think that's awesome. Um, It kind of, I mean, this is a great transition to that. Where can people find you guys? I mean, in general, like your website, social media, if you guys want to promote any of that right now. And then, I I mean, if people are in the area too, near you guys in West Virginia, any way to contact you, I, I guess social, whatever you think is best, what is it? Okay, so we have a lot of different options. Um, we have our website, which is HTTP, um, all that, www.srihuntingtonwestvirginiawv.com. We've got that that we keep rel- relatively up to date. I haven't done a good job in the past couple of weeks, but I got to get back on that. We also have social media platforms. We've got Instagram. We have Facebook. We have a Facebook page that you can follow us, and we keep that updated fairly regularly as well. Um, Teresa, you've got your blog, which I'll let you mention. Um, yeah, you can find me at Teresa's Haunted History of the Tri-State. Um, you know, if you just search for that, you can find it. It's a blog. Um, but I also am on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. So people can reach out to me there mm-hmm. and you know, even if they're trying to get to SRI, I can either send them directly to Brian or I can field all questions for yeah. him. But Yeah, we welcome anybody to contact us. We've got phone numbers and all that on our websites and stuff like that. You can get read to get directly to me. We've also got Sarah, we've got an email, SRIHuntingtonWV at gmail.com as well. So anybody that has any kind of queries or anything like that, they can send those that way as well. We try to reach out in as many different ways as we can because part of it is our outreach 
in terms of networking with other groups. Part of it is outreach on getting with potential clients. And also it is, I mean, rather selfishly, I guess, I don't know, depending on their perspective, but it is to get our message and stuff like that out there as well and to try to get more content that we can put together for the viewers and stuff like that to make our own contribution to this field. Awesome. Great. Well, Colin, you got anything else to add? I just wanted to say thank you guys. Um, we were able to connect through a Facebook group, so that was really awesome. Hey, we're good. I just wanted to say thank you for responding, and your stories have been great today. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It, it was awesome having you guys on. We appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you guys for having us. We greatly appreciate it as well. Yeah, right. thank you. Fun. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. <laughs> thank you, guys. Have a good night. That's what you should know about paranormal investigators.